6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 9 and 10. And furthermore, these near passings to the earth were predictable by the ancients. They could plan their battles around them. That's why the Assyrians camped on the hills of Jerusalem and so forth. And there's a whole thing we get into on that. If you're interested in that subject, I encourage you to get the, the study from the, the, either Joshua 10 or the, uh, the, the special side study we did on that called the study of the solar system. Now, the nations are scared of the signs of heaven for very good reason, because they interfere with their lives. People get killed. Walls tumble. The ancient walls fell. That's why it's hard to find walls. before. At 701 A.D. is when the, see, Mar, the, the thesis is that the Earth was 360-day orbits, and Mars had 720-day orbits. And they, were, they had near, near passbys, and depending which one was leading the other was which one picked up energy or lost energy or added or lost days to their orbit. And in 701 AD was the last near pass by, by after which the orbit stabilized. This has to do with orbital resonance, and there's a whole there's a book on that that's in the bibliography that's associated with those tapes. But the point is, is that um, up till 701 AD, the Earth didn't got along very fine with a 360-day calendar. There's 14 different cultures. All the ancient cultures had 360-day calendars up until 701 BC. Something happened that year to cause them to all have to correct their calendars. And everybody does weird things. The Romans add four days, four and a quarter days all the way. Uh, the Hebrews add a whole month every third year, approximately. Not always. <laughs> and, um, and the rabbis argue, why did Hezekiah do it this way than that way? What the rabbis don't argue by, about in the ancient rites, why did they have to do it in the first place? What was wrong with the calendar? Why didn't it work in 702 for true erection? 700 that it did in 702. Bear in mind, they go backwards at BC. Right? And, of course, the whole thing is that, that apparently was the last major flyby. Uh, the, uh, the NASA scientists that published the book point out that uh, the biblical catastrophes appear to be 160-year periods. And so some they looked and they built computer models and came to the, the Mars hypothesis, which is interesting. And then they discovered this thing in Jonathan Swift, which supports it from a literary point of view. Whole different deal. You could chase that. If you're interested, we'll move on. It's frustrating these things because they're so interesting. I'd love to get into them, yet I'd do you a disservice because some of you have heard it, and others that really want to get into. In any case, you can you can get the tape. So I'll I'll I probably spent too much time on already. Let's move on. Verse three: For the customs of the peoples are vain. That's no surprise. Huh? Uh, for one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen and the axe, and they deck it with silver and gold, and they fasten it with nails and hammers that it moves not. His point is, what, what, what results is the work of their hands. Nothing magic about the tree. They go out and get a tree, but they, they get it, they cut it, they trim it, whatever they do, uh, and then they deck it out with things, and then they fasten it with nails that it move not. His point, he's going to build on that later, because it, it's nailed down, it can't move, so what can it do for you? It can't carry you anywhere. It can't get around by itself. 
He's really going to paint the the paint. He's going to paint the picture of idols as being so much cumbersome baggage. Certainly not something that's a resource, which are our assets, not liabilities. He's pointing out that not only are are they not assets, they're liabilities. That's really one way of describing it. They dig it with silver and gold. They fasten with nails and hammers that have moved not. They are upright like the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it in them to do good. His argument here is that it's, it's, it, it's useless. It can't do you any harm. It can't do you any good. That's what he's saying. That happens not to be really true. And, and, and I don't want to make a big thing of this because I don't want to destroy the thrust of what Jeremiah is saying, but just a footnote is that he's dealing here in a poetical summary. To argue that they cannot do evil is wrong because we know from both New Testament and Old Testament revelation that when you worship an idol, you worship Satan. That behind the idols are demons. They are what, what's called in the technical trade an entry. Don't believe for a minute that a Ouija board or something of that nature is harmless superstition. Wrong. They are what's called an entry, and they can cause enormous supernaturally driven evil in a life. So don't regard these artifacts, some plywood and a little thing, what harm can it be? Huh. If you, have, you know, Exorcist is one... Uh, entertainment variation of what was a real uh, collection of case studies on that very subject. Anyway, William Blatty didn't make that up. It was based on, on case studies. For as much, verse 6, For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, and thy name is great in might. Who would not fear thee, O King of nations? For to thee doth it appertain, for as much as among all the wise men of the nations and in their kingdoms there is none like unto thee. But they are altogether stupid and foolish. The stock, the stock is a doctrine of vanities. Silver beaten into plates is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. The work of craftsmen in the hands of the goldsmiths. Blue and purple is their clothing. They are all the work of skillful men. By the way, blue and purple dyes are non-trivial technologies. Oh, I, I, I did not take the trouble of giving you, digging into all the uh, details. It turns out if you get into the ancient cultures, getting dyed garments, you and I take that for granted because we have modern chemistry. They didn't. So these are all very rare, special things, silver, gold, and the blue and purple, so forth. Those are expensive commitments of their resources. But the Lord is the true God, and he is the living God, an everlasting king. At his wrath the earth shall tremble, and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. A couple of things that I, I don't want to get too far away from these passages. I was going to go back, but I think we'll, we'll keep moving after me just a couple of comments. The, these ideas that the idols are vanity, the actual word is um, like breath without substance, um, and they are a burden to be carried like cumbersome baggage. I made that point. Uh, the word palm tree back here in the King James, verse 5, they are upright like the palm tree. Behind that, the word Hebrew word is tomar, and it's translated palm tree in the King James, but that's um, misleading too because it's more like a pillar, not palm tree, it's a pillar. And what most scholars see in that phrase 
is what you would call a phallic symbol, that they were trimmed and designed to be a fertility symbol. And so when you see pillars or palm trees, when you see in the Old Testament the phrase called the groves, that sounded like such an innocent thing, sounds like a grove of trees. What they're really talking about is an area typically on the top of a hill where there were trees and they trimmed the tree. They made a pagan fertility offering place for that. So it was a, a place of sex orgies and, and such that were involved in the Canaanite sex worship, which had to do with their, their concepts of, of, of trying to encourage fertility of the crops. And, uh, but they were all, that's why God always has his altars never on the hilltops by the tree, never by the groves. He says, what's wrong with having an altar near trees? You're missing the point. Never by the places that have been defiled with these pagan practices. And so there's some phrases in the, in the uh, Old Testament translations that uh, look innocuous enough. It's when you get behind that, you begin to realize there's far more being inferred there, implied there, than, than uh, you and I generally are sensitive to. Now, verse 11 is an interesting verse because it's the only verse in this book that's written in Aramaic or Chaldean. And there's been a lot of a lot of scholars wonder why did Jeremiah Jeremiah obviously knew Chaldean because you know it was just you know, but at the same time why is this in Chaldean? And the, and the reason is is because so that even the pagan nations could be indicted by what it says. Thus saith, thus shall ye say unto them under whom the pagan nations, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. So in other words, our God, the living God, is going to abide forever. But the gods that they're worshiping, these things, are going to be destroyed. And that phrase is, not, is written in language that they can understand. It's in Chaldean. Okay. Verse 12. He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom and hath stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens. Then these phrases, you know, it's hard to keep moving here. Do you remember in the book of Revelation how it describes his voice? Like the voice of many waters. Those phrases, when we read them in the book of Revelation, are strange to our ear because they're not New Testament phrases. You're right, they're Old Testament phrases. The book of Revelation is basically Hebrew in its concept, in its constructs, its graphs, its ideas. And if you've read a lot of Jeremiah, when you get to Revelation, when you hear his voice as the sound of many waters, it's very comfortable. It sounds familiar. Why? Because you read in Jeremiah. This isn't the only place. It happens a lot of places. It's just reminded of it here. When he uttered his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens. And he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh the lightnings for the rain. And he bringeth forth the wind out of his treasuries. And as you may know, uh, in the, between Proverbs, Psalms, and Ecclesiastes, you can find a description of the whole water cycle where Solomon asks, why do all the rivers run into the sea? And yet the sea doesn't get fuller. All rivers run into the sea. Why does the sea get fuller? It has its tides, but it doesn't, it doesn't rise above the mean tide normally. Why do all the rivers? Well, he points out, and he figures it out. You know, evaporation, clouds, rain, describes the water cycle. I think we discovered it, what, the 1700s. It took us a while, but it's all there. Every, verse 14, every man is stupid in his knowledge. Every goldsmith is confounded by the engraved image, for his melted image is a falsehood, and there is no breath in them. 
They are vanity. They are work of errors. In the time of their judgment, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the former of all things, and Israel is the rod of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Gather up thy wares out of the land, O, in o inhabitant of the fortress. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will sling out the inhabitants of the land at once, and I will distress them, that they may find it so. Isn't from verses 12 down to 16, we're going to encounter all that again in Jeremiah, in chapter 51, verses 15 through 19. So it's a, it's this whole idea will be collaborated on later on in Jeremiah. And um, so it's the whole uh, extolling of the power of God, especially his visible in nature. And his unique relationship with Israel is the theme here, and that will be expanded on uh, shortly. Now, verses 1 through 16, if, you really, if we've really been studying this whole passage of uh, 7 through 10, the last 16 verses are almost a parenthesis. What we now will really get into here between now and the end of the chapter is a wrap-up of what is sometimes called the Temple Sermon by Jeremiah. And it's this Temple Sermon that, that he's never forgiven for and, and creates all kinds of problems later. But uh, what we're going to also see here as we go on is that um, we're going to see him indulge in what sounds like a dialogue between him, Jeremiah, and the, a personified Jerusalem. He's going to carry on like as if he's carrying a dialogue on with Jerusalem, but obviously it's a rhetorical device that he's using. Um, and we're also going to see that the blame for the judgment is on the leadership. But let's jump in here. Verse 19, Woe is me for my hurt, my wound is grievous. But I said, Truly, this is a grief, and I must bear it. My tabernacle is spoiled, and all my cords are broken. My children are gone from me, and they are not. And there's none to stretch forth my tent anymore and to set up my curtains. For the shepherds are become stupid. And they have not sought the Lord. Therefore, they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. Shepherds here are idiomatic of the leadership, the leaders. Don't think of shepherds as shepherd shepherds. They're, the idiom is intended to connote the leadership of the nation. Verse 22, Behold, a sound of a rumor has come, and a great commotion out of the north country, to make the cities of Judah desolate and a den of jackals. O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. O Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in thine anger, lest thou bring me to nothing. Pour out thy fury upon the nations that know thee not, and upon the families that call not on thy name, for they have eaten up Jacob, and devoured him, and consumed him, and have made his inhabitation desolate. Really a rhetorical device, uh, trying to say, hey, we know where you're justified in punishing us, but don't forget those guys, they're, they're even worse. It's a... But the interesting phrase here, it is not in man that, uh, that walketh to direct his steps. It's interesting that no man can decide the course of his life. No man can decide the course of his life. You know how, how much poetry, how much schooling, how much uh, instruction we've had to set a direction to our lives. I'm dealing with the same thing, you know, planning, all that stuff. But in the last analysis, you can't do that, that there's no way to get any blessing. I mean, there's lots of scripture. There's no way to get any blessings without God's help. 
So your your ability to gain success, uh, victory, whatever, in any shape and form, is subject to the will of God. And you can find Psalm 37, 25, Proverbs 16, 9, Proverbs 20, 24, as a couple of places. But these ideas are all through the Bible, but we don't ever really phrase it that way, that we can't direct our own steps. But that's really, really, uh, really true. And uh, that's really what he's saying here. Um, and uh, then he goes on and says, Lord, correct me, but with justice. And what he's trying to say, what he's really saying here, it's translated justice, but what he's really saying is what you and I would really call a, something less than justice. The last thing you and I want, let me straighten you out on this point particularly, don't ever ask God for justice. Because if he gives us what we're justly due, we're in deep trouble. We are in deep trouble, you and I. Uh, I don't care how uh, how uh, how you may feel about that. Um, the more you learn about God's requirements, the more you discover you're inadequate. What you want is His mercy and His grace. You want His mercy, which is mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't. And there's a difference. They're opposites in a sense. You and I want his grace and his mercy. We don't want his justice. God has to be just, but he's been able to satisfy that justice through Jesus Christ. And he has paid the price to allow God to be merciful to you and I and be graceful to you and I. And that's the whole issue. So let's not get confused in the, in, in the Old Testament uh, style here. Uh, you and I don't want to pray for justice. Trust, trust me. Okay. Now, one small thing I might mention: verse twenty-five is part of the is recited annually by uh, uh, those in Judaism at the Passover Seder. Verse twenty-five of chapter ten finds itself in most of the Passover seders. Pour out thy fury upon the nations that know thee not, and upon the families that call not on thy name, for they have eaten up Jacob and devoured him, and consumed him, and have made his habitation desolate. Very important perception, particularly during that diaspora that uh, constitutes so much of our recent history. Chapter 11 through, let's see, let's, let's set the stage. Chapter 11 through chapter 20 is going to shift gears substantially. It's autobiographical and a narrative. It won't be quite so, he's still very, very poetic in the style and so forth, but you're going to discover that there was a, there's a, in his message, it, it takes more the, the flavor of a private diary. A lot of you girls, maybe especially when you're younger, probably kept a, a, what they call a journal, right? Just your thoughts, the stream of consciousness kind of thing for its own value. Well, that's sort of what we, we seem to encounter from chapters 11 through chapter 20. And 11 and 12 particularly together are a unit. That's why I hesitate to get into it far away here. There's going to be a lot of relationships back to uh, uh, the days of Moses. Those of you that might want to undertake a little homework for next time, I, it's going to be my premise that we get to verse 60 of chapter 11, that that was the text that Paul used for the 11th chapter of Romans. And you would do well if you get the occasion prior to us taking on the 11th chapter of Jeremiah is to read the 11th chapter of Romans. I mentioned Jeremiah 9 related to Romans 9. Coincidence, because those are just man's breakdowns. But um, 
Jeremiah 11 will set the stage, if you will, for Paul's premise in um, uh, Romans 11. Although Paul introduces an idea that Jeremiah did not know about, about the, wa the wild olive branch grafted in, and I'll let you, uh, you can wrestle with that. Chapter 12 is going to take up what is the classical paradox or problem in the Old Testament, and that's the why do the wicked prosper? That's a classical problem. It's treated, obviously, at great length in the book of Job. It's also treated by David in Psalm 37, by Asaph in Psalm 73. It was the, just coincidence, 37, 73. And also Habakkuk gets concerned with this. And that's a difficult philosophical issue that even the book of Job, with all it's dealing with, it still doesn't really put to bed. You and I should not have a problem with that because we have the benefit of viewing history, both back and forward, by benefit of the resurrection. And we could answer that with 1 Peter chapter 1 or something like that, because we have the benefit of viewing, uh, you know, uh, the ups and downs in God's, in God's horizon and, 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 and recognize that that all gets eclipsed, if you will, by the cross. So it's, we have a, perhaps we're less burdened by that classical problem. But anyway, Jeremiah will deal with it in chapter 12. And then we'll get into uh, these plots on his life and some other interesting things, chapter 12 and 13. But uh, we'll leave that for next time. Book of Jeremiah. Uh, it's a long book. It's, um, I, uh, on the one hand, don't want to get bogged down. I guess I did, I, did, I did tonight with a few digressions that perhaps got it a little too lengthy. It is my intention to go through Jeremiah at a little better pace than we generally do. But at the same time, I don't want to, I don't want to shortchange us as, as we get to know this man. But uh, a man of great depth of feeling and uh, very articulate, very caring, antithetical to many of the writers in the Old Testament, particularly Jonah, to take the opposite extreme, struggling with the certainty of the coming disaster. Jeremiah never has a doubt that it's coming, and he describes it in vivid, dramatic detail. On the one hand, the certainty of its coming, and the yet uh, offset by his hope of their repentance and uh, being spared. And that's, that's an agony. And uh, as, I, as I read Jeremiah, and I understand his peculiar because God, on the one hand, told him he really cared about the people, and yet uh, he knew they wouldn't hear. What agony for the guy who cares about these people. It's an agony, and those of you that are parents know about your kids. You know, when you, you, you tell them something, you know they're going to disobey, they're going to put their hand on the hot stove, don't do it. You know they're going to do it. When they do, they get the blisters and burns. The agony of trying to get them not to do it, knowing they will, and that, that frustration. Uh, and, and we're seeing here, God, uh, those of you that are parents can perhaps relate to, to, uh, to Jeremiah's agony as he deals with his people who um, are just not listening. And the other agony that I guess uh, one thing uh, being a parent has taught me, I, as, I, as I see certain frustrations as a father, I have come to the conclusion that what God, what hurts him most of all is not our disobedience. Uh, 
my kids when our kids disobey, yes, you get upset, but on the one hand, uh, you can deal with that. What pains God more, I believe, is our ingratitude. Of all the things I've never been prepared for as a parent is the ingratitude. Disobedience you can deal with, I think. But um, ingratitude. And as, as I encounter certain circumstances in my own life, I am shocked to realize that what God's telling me, that that's the way we hurt him. Yet don't misunderstand me. He wants us to be obedient. But I think he has remedies for our disobedience. I don't know what his remedies are for our ingratitude. I wonder how often we just take him for granted, how we take what he's done for us for granted. That's where I believe he feels pain. And um, that's uh, in Zechariah 13, 6, where it, where it predicts, what are these wounds in thine hands? I think what what uh, hurt Jesus Christ were not the nails of the Roman soldiers, but the nail prints that Thomas's, that were manifestations of Thomas's doubt, which is in effect a form of perhaps an ultimate form of ingratitude. Let's rise for a word of prayer. Jeremiah, passionate prophet, concerned about his nation, and maybe, I suggest to you, he's concerned about his nation the way you and I should be concerned about ours. And what we need to do, and I think the most powerful tool you can have, in my opinion, isn't your vote. Don't misunderstand. I think you all should vote and take your vote seriously. But you've got something vastly more powerful than that which you do on Election Day. Because that's once a year and your vote's a vote. You have a vastly more powerful resource if you have any concern for this country. And that's your prayers. That's your prayers. If the Holy Spirit lays it on your heart, I encourage you into a, a, a commitment of private prayer on behalf of this country, that we might indeed have a revival, that we might have a return to a position that God can spare us the judgment that otherwise will come. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.